0: Kyle, we want to tell you about the book of Job. It's a story from the Bible. I've heard enough of the Bible. What has it got me? Oh, I think you'll see differently after hearing this. Job was a great man. He was blessed with ten lovely children, a wonderful wife, and many friends. He was a godly and a good man and fed the poor. He was the most upright and honorable of men, and every day he praised God. But one day, Satan went up to heaven and talked to God. Satan talked to God? Yes, in the book of Job, Satan talks to God. And God says to Satan, have you seen Job? He is a great man and he praises me every day. But Satan said, oh yeah? He only praises you because you gave him so much. If you didn't give him those things, he would curse your name. To which God said, Oh yeah? I'll show you, Satan. I'll take those things away from Job and he will still praise my name. And so, God had a bunch of barbarians come in and slaughter Job's oxen donkeys and murder all his workers. Then God sent his fireballs from the sky and killed his sheep and the rest of his employees. And then, as Job's sons and daughters were eating, God sent a mighty wind to collapse the house and crushed and killed them all. Job was terribly sad, but he fell to his knees and said, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, and praised God's name. So then Job got painful sores all over his body. He was in terrible, miserable pain all day, every day, but he still kept his faith. God said to Satan, See, I told you, Job still praises me. And that's it? That's the end? Basically. That's the most horrible story I've ever heard. Why would God do such horrible things to a good person just to prove a point to Satan? Oh, uh, I don't know. Then I was right. Job has all his children killed, and Michael Bay gets to keep making movies. There isn't a God. The story of Job perplexes modern readers perhaps more than any other part of the Bible. Where and how does this outrageous story fit into the rest of the Bible, and is its message really the one that most people today insist it is? If you'd like some pithy, scripted answers to these and other questions about Job, you have downloaded the correct podcast. This is Book. Hello and welcome to Book, a Bible podcast for everybody. I'm Josh Way. I was earnestly excited to get to this particular episode until it came time to actually research and write it. Then I remembered, oh yeah, Job is a difficult book. It's long, the subject matter is grim, the scholarship surrounding it is murky, and traditional readings tend to either whitewash it or throw it in the trash can. And then there's the whole Satan thing. Well, alright, here we go. If you're unfamiliar with Job, that South Park clip we heard at the top is actually a pretty faithful summary, uh, at least of the opening chapter. A righteous man named Job becomes the pawn in a bet between God and the Satan to see how much suffering it would take to make a good man curse God. Job's family, his herds, and his property are destroyed, and he himself is stricken with painful sores. After a lengthy ordeal and a seemingly endless discussion between Job and his friends, God relents and restores the poor man's health and property. He even gives him some new children. Happy ending, right? I guess. But that's exactly how I have been taught to read Job my whole life. I've sat through many sermons and lessons about Job that go like this. Job suffered, as we all will, but he never cursed God, and so God blessed him in the end. Let us do likewise. Well, not only is that conclusion deeply unsatisfying, but that reading of the story is downright suspect. Can a new family really be considered a replacement for a dead one? What about the shocking implications of God making a wager with the Satan? And is it true that Job never curses God? Was that the point of the whole thing? Well, we'll see. So we've got some homework to do. As usual, our goal is to understand the book of Job through the lenses of history and literature. Unfortunately, in this case, neither one is easy or clear cut. But here's what we have to work with. In terms of history, Job is not tethered to any known time or place in ancient Israel. We don't even know if Job was an Israelite. There's no genealogy nor any biographical information, no in the time of the judges or during the reign of Jehoiachin. All it says is this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The land of Uz is all we get, and that's not very helpful. Uz is not a known place in ancient Israel, though it may be a family designation. Abraham had both ancestors and descendants named Uz. Unlike all the historical narratives in the Hebrew Bible, we have no specific time frame, no specific place. And scholars can't even agree on the general time frame of the book's writing. The text of Job, which borrows heavily from other ancient languages like Akkadian, was once thought to be the oldest in the Bible. But today, a growing consensus says that Job was actually written very late in Israel's national history. And at the end of the day, we just don't have very much to go on. Now, traditional religious readings haven't considered this a problem because it's enough for most people that Job is a character in the Bible. But the lack of historical or covenantal context is a big deal for us as we struggle to unlock this weird text. The biggest ramification of this, in light of the book's problematic content, is that we're not necessarily obligated to read this as a, quote, literal or historical text, or to put it another way. We're not obligated to fit Job into the covenantal history of Israel. This story about a man could very well be a parable or a drama of some kind, an exercise in wisdom. And now we're moving into our second sandbox, literature. The lack of historical nuance is enough to raise some questions, but the issue of genre really gets us moving in the right direction. The problem for modern readers of Job is that we're distracted and placated by the short, somewhat trite little narrative bits at the beginning and end of the scroll, but we don't so much care for the many long chapters of discourse which comprise the bulk of it. And this isn't simple conversational dialogue, it's verse. Job is a long, poetic debate framed by a simplistic narrative which sets the parameters for the discussion. This is an ancient genre which is unfamiliar to us, a debate play in which characters who represent different philosophical points of view come together to meet minds on a given topic. And in Job, the central question has to do with suffering and the character of God. Here's the big idea. Job is one of the few biblical explorations of something called theodicy. Theodicy is the question of justifying God and his character or actions. It's what that South Park clip was all about. Now, you'd expect there'd be a lot more of this in the Bible, but it's actually rather rare. And in fact, we'll see that Job isn't exactly a traditional theodicy for reasons we'll explore later. Job takes the problem of human suffering embodied by the central character, and subjects it to the full scrutiny of Israel's wisdom tradition. The conclusions are unexpected and disconcerting, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Now, we can't talk about the Job debate without properly setting the stage, and we can't do that without talking a little bit about the Satan. Here's what the scroll says, chapter 1 and verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of the Elohim came to present themselves before Yahweh and the Satan also came along with them. Yahweh said to the Satan, from where have you come? The Satan answered Yahweh and said, I have been roaming all over the earth. And Yahweh said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then the Satan answered Yahweh and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to the Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So the Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. Now I've been very careful in the translation of names and titles in this passage to help us sort it all out. One day, the sons of the Elohim came before Yahweh, Israel's God. Elohim, you might recall, is a very flexible word in Hebrew, which can sometimes refer to God himself, sometimes to a host of gods, or in this case, to the council of God, the divine beings which serve Yahweh and accomplish the work of heaven, whatever it may be. Presumably... The first readers of this text would have understood this idea more clearly, whether it's a mythological trope or a literal interpretation or revelation of what is actually going on in heaven. This particular language is not used frequently in the Bible, so we are left somewhat in the dark. The sons of the Elohim are accompanied by the Satan, about whom we must now say a few words. When modern readers hear Satan, they immediately think of something very specific, the devil, the serpent. Pitch, Old Gooseberry, the personal enemy of God. But the reality is that the concept of Hasatan, the adversary or the accuser in Hebrew, has undergone an evolution through time and even from one end of the Bible to the other. We haven't talked about Hasatan on book to this point simply because it hasn't been mentioned in the text, except for one time that we passed over in the book of Chronicles. Here in Job, Hasatan is one of the Elohim, a member of heaven's council who has been roaming the earth. He is not God's equal and opposite adversary, not the master of hell in the underworld. He is a heavenly staff member, the accuser, whose job is apparently to dole out trouble on the earth. In that capacity, he has an audience with God himself, and they have a chat. Indeed, they make a wager... And Job's troubles begin. A host of troubles are visited upon Job. Invaders destroy his herds and kill his servants. Fire destroys his flocks. And all of his ten children are killed when the house they are feasting in collapses. This is his reaction. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Yahweh announces that he has won the bet, but Hasatan insists that Job will break if the next tragedy befalls his own body. God agrees as long as the man is not killed, Job is stricken with painful sores and sits in misery, scratching his boils with a piece of broken pottery, and his wife offers him some helpful advice. Then his wife said to him, "'Do you still hold fast your integrity?' Curse God and die. But he said to her, spoken like a shameless woman, Shall we receive good from God and not also receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, this is where that South Park clip, and to be frank, most modern religious interpretations of Job bail out. But really, the biggest portion of the book is just beginning. Next, Three of Job's friends arrive to give him comfort, as was the custom in the ancient world. The writing style changes, and the rest of the long book consists of flowery statements and increasingly flowery rebuttals. This is the part we are tempted to skip over, but which is surely the real meat and potatoes, the content of the book. Job kicks things off with this cheery little plea. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet, I would have slept and I would have been at rest. With kings and counsellors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold or filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not a hidden stillborn child as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together, they hear not the voice of the taskmaster." The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Now the debate begins, and I'll do my best to summarize each of the friend's statements and Job's responses with brief quotes. The first to lecture Job is Eliphaz the Temanite, who says, in chapters 4 and 5, Remember, who that was innocent has ever perished. As for me, I would seek God. This is basically an appeal to old-school Israelite wisdom. The good prosper, the wicked perish. If you're innocent, you should have nothing to worry about. If you're suffering, it must be because of some wickedness in your life. Job is not exactly moved. From chapters 6 and 7. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Job rejects the implicit premise of Elahaz's statement that Job must be personally responsible for his suffering per the machinations of wisdom. Job's implied premise is that he is suffering innocently. Next up in chapter 8 is Bildad who has this to say, If you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you. God will not reject a blameless man. Bildad's gist is the same as Eliphaz, but he has a helpful suggestion. Try being more righteous. If you're really, really good, God will have no choice but to bless you. Once again, Job's not buying it, and he responds in chapters 9 and 10. How can a man be in the right before God? He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone. Job is basically taking a page out of Kohelet, out of Ecclesiastes, and reaching the same conclusion as that book. The so-called righteous and the wicked are both destined for the grave, so show me the actual advantage of being righteous. Zophar is up next in chapter 11. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Zophar sounds a lot like a modern-day Protestant Christian. He says, you think your suffering is bad? Well, it's not half as bad as what you deserve because your heart is so black and sinful. Repent, get right with God. Job fires back, I am not inferior to you. The hand of the Lord has done this. You whitewash with lies, worthless physicians, all of you. If a man dies, shall he live again? How dare you, says Job. You're supposed to be comforting me, not sitting in judgment. And Job reiterates that he's innocent and that God is the one who did this to him. And he muses that life is short and pointless. Now that everyone's had a turn to speak, I'll speed up the rest of my summary with one-line exchanges. Eliphaz, you are neglecting the fear of God. Your own mouth condemns you. Job, miserable comforters, all of you. God has torn me with his wrath and hated me. Where then is my hope? Bildad, why are we stupid in your sight? The light of the wicked will be put out. Job, how long will you torment me? I call for help, but there's no justice. I know that my Redeemer lives. Zophar, The joy of the godless is but for a moment. This is the wicked man's portion from God. Job. Why do the wicked live and grow mighty in power? Eliphaz. Can a man be profitable to God? Is not your evil abundant? Agree with God and be at peace. Job. My complaint is bitter. I go forward, but he's not there. Bildad. Dominion and fear are gods. How can he who is born of woman be pure? Finally, Job has had it. I hold fast to my righteousness and will not let it go. But where shall wisdom be found? It's hidden from all the living. I am a brother to jackals. If I've walked with falsehood, let me be weighed in a just balance. Oh, that I had one to hear me. The words of Job are ended. Thus ends Job's debate with his friends, and ultimately Job sticks to his guns. He's righteous, innocent, but made to suffer, and it is up to God to recognize and reward his righteousness. Before the shocking events that conclude the book can commence, another dude named Elihu shows up to berate Job and the three friends. He's mad at Job because, quote, he has justified himself and not God, and he's mad at the friends because, quote, they have found no answer. He goes on for six whole chapters, saying things like, I will declare my opinion. You say I am pure. In this you are not right. God is greater than any man. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness. The Almighty will not pervert justice. Job speaks without knowledge. He adds rebellion to his sins. If you are righteous, what did you give to God? Surely God does not hear an empty cry. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise anyone but you are full of judgment on the wicked. Elihu takes everybody to task, not least Job for the arrogance of judging himself righteous and the others wicked. He makes a solid point, and yet at this point, he just seems kind of like a loudmouth wagging his finger and drawing out an already interminable debate. If only there was someone more authoritative who could chime in, someone relevant to the discussion who could provide some insight, a debate killer of sorts. Oh, right. How about God himself? Chapter 38. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who has laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of the Elohim shouted for joy, Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. God says to Job, Hey, Did you ever create a walrus? No? Then why do you even bother sitting around and debating my ways? Job's response is a solid little nugget of wisdom. Then Job answered Yahweh and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I put my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. God issues a final challenge to Job. I will question you. Will you condemn me that you might be in the right? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? And Job falls on his face in repentance. You can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand. Now my eye sees you and I repent in dust and ashes. In the end, only God comes out on top. Job's friends were wrong for judging him and utterly failing to comfort him. Job was wrong to insist that he was righteous and innocent. The implications of the whole thing are actually kind of staggering, but first we need to wrap up the narrative. The book of Job ends with two small narrative bits. First, God rebukes Job's friends and tells them to go make atonement sacrifices for having been such numbskulls, and then God, quote, restores the fortunes of Job, giving him new crops, new herds, new servants, and great wealth, twice what he had before. Job even gets new offspring, ten new children to replace the lost. The end. Well, if we insist on reading Job as a simple, literal, narrative story, then the brief happy ending here is the climax, and it's up to you what lesson, if any, you take away from it. But if we recognize the unique style and format, and the fact that, as with all Hebrew thinking and writing, it's not necessarily the ending, but what comes in the middle that matters most, then we begin to appreciate what Job really is and what it's really saying. Theodicy is all about putting God on trial to see whether or not he meets the standard, whether or not he is just. Job sets out to conduct such a trial, with human suffering as the damning exhibit A. In the end, however, the book turns the tables, and wisdom, religion, and theodicy itself are in the dock. Job questions all the old easy answers about righteous and wicked, good and bad, innocent and guilty, and then questions its own questions. In the end, God schools everyone involved for bringing it all up in the first place. That's why I say this isn't exactly a theodicy as the question of God's justness is never answered. As a piece of wisdom literature, Job is more innovative even than Kohelet, Kohelet looked at Proverbs and called its easy answers and platitudes into question, but Job goes a step further and calls the questioning into question. This is one of the amazing things about the Bible that is sadly overlooked, that it almost constantly re-examines and scrutinizes itself, asking the big questions over and over and coming up with new answers, or at least poking holes in the old ones. So many people have read Job as a one-dimensional promise that good people will be rewarded, that the real message, a prickly and challenging one, is lost. In the coming weeks, we'll look at the literature that came out of Israel's experience in exile in Babylon and Persia. The exile forced a violent reevaluation of everything Israelite, and the literature that was born out of that period is extraordinary. I hope that you will continue to join me. This has been Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I have been Josh Way. If you enjoyed this podcast, I urge you to share, like, tweet, tweep, cleep, blog, tumble, stumble, chumble, and flues it to your online friends and family. If you have any comments, questions, or constructive feedback, you can email me at book at joshway.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 801-760-3013, and I'll try to answer it on the podcast. Read the book blog and find more content at book.joshway.com. That's going to do it for me, Bible pals. I will catch you next time.